What's Up Podcast. This is Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this is episode 209 with Dean Somerset. This is the second time you've been on my show, and the episode starts very laid back, nonchalant, you know, we're just shooting the shit. Because I kind of like that style where we just start having a conversation and then get into the interview. But this interview is jam-packed with a lot of good info. We talk a lot about rehab. We talk about his new project called the Trainer Toolbox, which I will link in this episode in the show notes if you want to find out more. And we answer some questions from we, from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever else I posted that I would be interviewing Dean. So without further ado, here is Dean Somerset. Um, yeah, so I've been doing this a little bit differently because like when I have people on the second time, I kind of just, I don't even do an intro. I just kind of, you know, go with the flow and see how things go from there and kind of keep it more casual than anything. So if you're yep. cool with that, we kind of just get started and see where the convo takes us. Yeah, man, I'm done with that. Sweet. Um, so maybe to get started, it's been like over a year since I've had you on my show. So like, what's new and exciting in your life? Well, part of it is uh, I moved from the commercial facility that I was at for the last 14 years and right. opened up uh, my own training business working out of Evolve Strength in downtown Edmonton. So uh, I'm essentially an independent business now. Sweet. What, what yeah. made you want to do the move? Uh, primarily economic, like the offer that I had to go over was a really good one. I mean, I'm only paying $500 a month for rent out of the facilities <laughs> and I can control the entire income that I generate from it. So yeah. from an economic perspective, it was about a $3,000 a month raise right out the gate. If I didn't do anything different for pricing or training volume or anything like that. Yeah. So yeah, that was the primary move. That's like, it's like stupid not to do that move on 500 bucks. That's super cheap. Jeez. Yeah, because I mean, to go train at like a private studio, yeah. there's a lot of places charging $1,500 to $2,000 a month yeah. for doing the same thing in probably one-tenth the space, and you have like a bit more micromanagement for whoever the owner is or whatever they want to do, yeah. so uh, this way it was just a no-brainer. It was an easy decision to make. Yeah. Did you, did you find that like majority of all your clients just followed you wherever you went? Um, well, because most of them came to train with me, yeah. regardless of what situation it was, uh, when I said, I'm leaving, I'm going over here, they're like, and I'm coming with you. Yeah. So it wasn't really a difficult thing to do. I, I just let clients know I'm not going to be here. I wasn't soliciting them. And they all just reached out to me through various means afterwards. It's like, all right, when are we training? Yeah. So it's a pretty easy process going through that. Yeah, I think that's a, another good like topic, too, because a lot of coaches in the industry, sometimes when they decide to leave whatever gym they're at for so many years, they get kind of scared, like, oh, shit, what if none of my clients follow me? But it's like, if you developed a really good relationship with them, they're going to follow you no matter where you go. <laughs> well, the interesting thing was that when I started up at uh, Evolve, I had about a dozen people come out and say, hey, now that you're no longer at World Health, I want to come train with you. <laughs> so it wasn't something where it was like, a necessary thing for my clients to follow me or to come with me or anything like that. It was more, there was a, a large market of people who just didn't want to go through the corporate gym setting or the commercial gym setting and they wanted to get training in a way that didn't make them feel like they were being pressured into membership or sales or anything like that. So uh, quite a few people reached out to say, well, I just want to train with you now that you're not in a position of a commercial gym. Yeah, so that was a, a pretty eye-opening thing in that aspect. 
Yeah, it's tough because sometimes where you're in like a setting where there's so many other people and like it's a huge environment being in that kind of gym setting. It's kind of intimidating for a lot of, especially new people or if someone has an injury and they're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to fit in here. Like sometimes you just have to mm-hmm. look at things at the eyes of the client sometimes. Absolutely. And the cool thing about the facility I'm at now is there's actually a physio clinic right off the gym floor. Cool. So they're treating people in the clinic and then bringing them onto the gym floor. Around the corner is a couple of chiropractic offices. There's a few psychiatrists and psychologists. So cool. it's kind of an integration between like the clinical side of things. But there's also Olympic weightlifting teams, powerlifting teams. So in terms of like the hardcore, very intimidating element of things, that's there. Yeah. So it's more intimidating than a commercial gym in that respect. But then there's also like the clinical side of things showing people who are at the other end of the spectrum than the competitive athletes sweet that sounds like a perfect place for you honestly it's like right up your alley (laughs) yeah i mean i've had a lot of times where like uh physios and chiros and i have kind of just gone back and forth with patients and uh like i can just stop them in the hall and say hey how is this person doing what do you want me to do differently okay let's go and do that instead of having to do like email chains or foip or anything like that it's just more of that informal communication to make things easier yeah definitely Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually wondering, like, your opinion on, like, rock tape, rock blading, and, like, now they have rock pods. Because it's kind of like that company's growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and now they're kind of almost marketing it to coaches to almost dabble into what physios and chiros are doing. So I'm kind of curious, like, do you like the rock tape stuff that they're doing? Do you think there's any kind of benefit for a coach to go get those certifications? I'll be honest, I haven't looked at it at all. Okay. So I don't have much of an opinion for or against it because I'm just ignorant of what's going on with it. Um, some of the research that I looked at years ago as far as K-tape goes showed it wasn't all that specific or beneficial. Mm-hmm. Whether that's changed or not, I have no idea. But uh, it's something that I think that a lot of uh, trainers, if they're going to go that route, they'd better go hard and they'd better learn as much as possible about it rather than just take a weekend cert and start slapping it on their accountant client or their postnatal client. You better learn exactly why and how you're doing that so that you do it within not just the application benefits, but also your scope of practice as a trainer. So when you start applying uh, therapeutic modalities to your client, you're way outside of scope of practice for trainers. Yeah. Yeah. Like in my position, I'm kind of, in a cool but also interesting platform. So I teamed up with a chiropractor, so I'm under her license. So she likes using um, K-tape and cupping and blading, but she'll tell me exactly what she wants me to do. And the thing I've, like, seen is, like, I don't know if it's, like, the research is that great, but it's almost like there's a huge placebo effect to it because it's like you slap a piece of tape on someone's knee automatically they feel invincible so it's like maybe it doesn't actually really work but now that person has a little bit more confidence to actually move because so many people like injure a joint they're like oh no i don't want to move at all i'm gonna just stay Mm -hmm. super tight so it's kind of interesting seeing it from like a psychosocial aspect yeah there's definitely a proprioceptive change that happens but i mean you can do that just by pushing your thumb into somebody's tissue at any point on their body there's going to be a change in proprioception you're definitely in a different situation because you're doing it at the behest and guidance of the car so if i was just joe blow trainer who's like oh i took this course on the weekend here i'm going to slap some tape on you without it being from a clinical directive now you're kind of crossing lines right so you're in a unique situation because you're getting that clinical guidance and direction and also like the practical how-to of why and where 
where to do it versus somebody who's a trainer who's trying to come up with that on their own. Yeah, it's a little scary because it's like, you know, if I had a client come into my gym and they're like, oh, my God, I pulled my back, everything hurts, I can't even touch my knees if I go reach down. In my head, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to slap some tape and, like, scrape you. I'm like, you should go see somebody really quickly because, like, you never know what could what's yeah. happening, right? Like, you can guess, but it's just from a liability standpoint, it just makes sense to, like, go see a chiro or physio and they can rule out everything. True. And I mean, in terms of invasiveness, uh, some tape isn't really going to be the most invasive treatment. It's going to be more like, well, this may make a difference, but it's not going to make you worse. And it's not something where it's like, oh, we're going to take a risk with this. It's something, well, here's just some tape. It's like saying, hey, here's some tighter socks. It's really not going to crush the individual. It's just going to be like, well, here's stuff. Let's see if it works. And if it does, great. If not, oh, well, we're not out anything other than just the cost of the tape and the time it took to put it on. So it's one of those ones that... If it works, great. If it doesn't, great. But if you're starting to cross that line as a trainer, you better know exactly how, when, why, and what to do with it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is like, um, so you know, 2018 ended. We're in a new year. If you had to look back in 2018, what were like some big highlights for you? And what did you kind of? What was your biggest takeaway of 2018 going into the new year? Well, if we look across the population, everybody's mad. I don't know why, but everyone just seems to be really mad about a lot of stuff. So talking people down off the edge seems to be kind of a a big trend that I can see becoming huge in 2019, becoming less offended about everything. There's obviously like rightful needs to be offended if somebody is like openly racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's not stuff that should fly in 2019. But then there's people that are just mad about stuff. It's like, who cares if somebody likes doing a burpee? You know, let them do a burpee if they really want. (laughs) I mean, I may not program it, but that's just me. I mean, if you love burpees and they make you so happy that you want to do an hour of them, all right, more power to you. If you ever have a problem, let me know. But at the same time, I'm not going to get upset about that. Yeah. uh, on top of that, like in terms of stuff that was really cool, getting to spend a couple of weeks in Europe with my wife was kind of a big thing. Tony and I do- taught a workshop in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, anywhere that you've seen, heard, or been to, but I would definitely recommend that to anybody if they wanted to see parts of Europe that they haven't seen before. A really cool city that has this big castle on top of a mountain in the downtown core, and the bridges going into the downtown core have dragons on them. So the dragon is the official animal of Slovenia, which is kind of awesome. And then uh, getting to go through like Venice, Italy before it had the worst flooding in a generation. So it was still dry when I was there. But the week after, man, five feet of water in St. Mark's Square. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, Plus, we booked a whole bunch of stuff for this year. So I've got a new digital product dropping, not this week, but next week. That was a big collaborative approach with uh, eight other professionals. And then Tony and I are continuing even more shoulder and hip blueprint workshops. We're looking to film that sometime this year. We're going to be going to Sydney, Australia and Singapore in back-to-back weekends. So 2018 was kind of a big laying the groundwork type of year for 2019. Sweet. How how many cities did you end up going to in 2018 for that um, hip and shoulder blueprint? For that one, we only really did three. We did uh, Houston, Texas, Ljubljana, Slovenia, and LA. So this year we've got five on the docket, potentially six. Um, so we'll see what happens with some of the dates. But uh, yeah, it's looking like a pretty decent year this year. Has it like evolved at all since last year? Like, have you guys added stuff to it or anything like that? Yeah, this is essentially like a level two of the level one. Oh, cool. So when the 
more complete or the complete shoulder and hip blueprint, we went into that thinking, well, this is going to be like a level one overview of everything. And all of the content for this assumes that everyone watched level one. So when people register for the even more complete shoulder and hip, they get access to the digital videos of level one. So that way they can get up to speed so that when they come in on day one, they have full way of going about everything. Cool. So now that you've done a couple, like, I would call it like a tour of your hip and shoulder blueprint, like, what are the most common questions you're getting from people? And what are the questions you wish people asked about the hip and shoulder? Uh, The funny thing is that once we get into the material and we start talking about things like asymmetries of the hip and how, like, you may have to take an asymmetric stance, Mm -hmm. people still look at it and say, but that's not right. That's not symmetric. That's not set up the way that I was shown in the textbooks. And then I just say, remember all of that research that I just showed you on why we're asymmetric and why we need to adjust things and how important it is. That's still kind of a big sticking point for a lot of people. And it's hard to kind of flex your approach or your style to say, you know, if I turn this right foot out 20 degrees and move this left foot forward two or three inches, that's fine for that individual. It's a little bit of a a brain screw for some people to be able to get into that position, even though all the evidence points to that being the way their anatomy lines up or all of the assessment work that we do to predicate getting into that position shows that that's appropriate for that person. And they report back saying this feels great and strong and stable and awesome. It's still a hard flex for some people to get into. Fair enough. Yeah, Yeah, I think a lot of times like people or whatever they're just used to and then someone kind of like shows it just a different angle of it they're just like whoa 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 this is not what i was learned like taught in school or whatever and they kind of are not even like open to it they're kind of just like tunnel visioned on what they believe in and sometimes it's just you know taking a step back and just looking at the whole picture Yeah. And sometimes you have to take people's thought processes and just completely dissect them out. Like there's a lot of trainers who are so sold on the concept of perfect alignment that they don't allow any variation or they think that if I move this way that my L4 is going to explode or if I do this, my rotator cuff is going to tear or if I do this with my neck, stuff is going to explode. It might lead to slight increase in forces across those areas, but every single human being is different and that means that they're going to move different their normal alignment or their neutral alignment is going to be different what they can tolerate in terms of training stresses and positions is going to be different and then understanding that there's also a post-mortem effect of exercise where you look at the person and say how did that feel what did you feel working is that what i was hoping for or not if i have a client doing rows and they say their neck was feeling it they're probably not doing a row properly because the lats are supposed to be what you're using with the row, lats, rhomboids, lower traps. If they're feeling their neck, something's going on with their position. So if they can feel the muscles working, I don't care what position they're in. I don't care about their alignment as long as it doesn't look like a train wreck. I'm gonna try and get them into the best position possible to get the benefit of what exercise that I'm trying to get them to do would actually deliver to them as an individual. Now that might be really flexed or really extended or twisted or done something different depending on the individual. Yeah, and that's what I've been like. So I'm at a new gym right now, and uh, currently we're I think we're at 520 members. So we do a lot of like group classes, and I've been chatting with a lot of members, and a lot of them will say like, "Oh, you know, my squat doesn't feel right, or my like lunges don't feel right." And a lot of times I just ask them to show me, and and I always try to explain to them like, whatever you think the way you're supposed to squat or deadlift or lunge it's probably completely different like let's play around different foot positions let's play around with different angles like i always tell every single person like you're an individual 
the person beside you, their squad is going to look 100% different than yours. There's so many different, like, variables, and then their eyes kind of, like, open up. They're like, oh, I'm allowed to do it this way? And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's eye-opening for the clients as well as the trainer. Yeah. I mean, when people think it has to be this way, otherwise I'm not normal or I'm less of a human being, that's limiting their potential in every way possible. So getting people to actually do stuff that fits them makes them see the benefits they're trying to get. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, let's get into some questions because some people started commenting on Facebook and Instagram. But um, Greg, that once thought you were uh, Brett Contreras, which was awesome. <laughs> um, but you could probably talk about the hip thrust anyway. But let's get to his question first. But yeah. he asks, uh, what are your go-to assessments for the hips? And what are a few musts in your programs? I feel like there's still a lot of controversy over training the hip region, what to stretch, what to strengthen, etc. And as well as an ongoing battle between strength and correctives, how do we bridge that gap? Um, that's a lot of questions yeah. in there. We, so, we can go back to it, don't worry. Let's start off with the assessment part. Yeah. Um, the assessment, I'm going to use this as a running team for every answer that I give. It's all dictated by the client and their goals. So the assessment is based on do they have specific injury history, do they have specific goals going forward, what are they working towards and what's holding them back. So uh, an assessment that I would use for a total hip replacement client, vastly different from a 20-year-old cyclist, vastly different from a 30-year-old hockey player, vastly different from a 50-year-old accountant. So it's all going to be completely different depending on the individual who's in front of me. Um, we might start with a passive table assessment where I'm looking at what's the theoretical range of motion their joints have. Do they have weird end feels or pain points throughout that range? Then we get up and go through an active assessment to see does their active match their passive? Can they have gross motor competency through things like a squat, a lunge, a deadlift? Can they actually control that stuff or do we need to regress the movement to get them to learn how to do it properly? From there. It may get into things like performance testing where I say, okay, let's load some weight on a bar and see what you can do. Or that might be as far as we go. It depends on the individual. Um, for correctives, again, that comes back to the individual and their goals. And also what do we see with the assessment? If they have a lot of passive range of motion, but no active range of motion, we're gonna do pails and rails from FRC to get them to learn how to control isometric tension into those range of motions that they can't access. If they have good passive, good active, but really crappy gross motor patterns, I'm gonna teach them how to do the exercise. If they have no passive, no active, and poor motor control patterns, we're gonna get them into just basic end range positions, learn how to get some static stretching benefit, learn how to contract muscles, and develop a conditioning and training response. If they have no range of motion whatsoever, they're a walking tin man. Then we need an oil can like in Wizard of Oz. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, it all comes back to that individual, their goal set, and what does the assessment look like for them. And then from there, we develop the corrective strategy if needed, and then performance on top of it. And I, I like that you brought up like the whole passive and active range of motion because like that's something that I think a lot of coaches forget to look at because like if someone was kind of you know, influence with Gray Cook, with the FMS, they kind of just stick to that, um, you know, set of, I think it's several different movement patterns. But yeah. I'm, I'm always kind of curious. It's like, you know, yeah, sure, you can bring your leg over your head, but actively, can you actually do that? And usually mm -hmm. there's a huge gap between passive and active um, range of motion. And it's like, fuck, that's a big, weak link. Like, that's what I kind of, in my head, I'm like, I want to attack that first. Yeah. So maybe we can like structure this next question is like how other than say pails and rails, um, what can a client or trainer do to kind of bridge that gap from active and passive range of motion? 
A lot of the time it's just getting used to being in the range of motion that they're not used to. So let's say that you want to go overhead for an overhead press, but when you raise your arm up, your elbow barely gets above your chin. If I was to grab your arm and pull it up, but you get all the way there, what's going on? Yeah. Now we have to dig deeper to figure out, is it a scapular rotational issue? Is it a thoracic spine extension issue? Do you have a whole bunch of griminess around your collarbone that's locking it down to your rib cage and not allowing it to rotate up? Is it neck stuff, muscle stuff? Is it nerve stuff? We can start clearing things off the table to figure out what's going on. But if I can get you up there passively, you should be able to generate tension in that position some way or another. If you have literally no tension in that position, I'm concerned that maybe it's a neurovascular stuff. So at that point, it's more like, okay, well, you can't generate tension in this position that you can get your joint to. Why is that? And we're not talking about tension to lift like 500 pounds over your head. I'm just saying, can you contract stuff in that position? If you can, which is like 99.9% .9 of the population, great, we can start training that today. But if you can't, then that's becoming a pathological thing. You're getting referred out to figure out why that's happening. But for most people, it's just get them into the ranges of motion that they're not used to and learn what it feels like to generate tension in that spot. And once you learn how to do that, you can usually access that range of motion more effectively. And you can see this in a two to three rep range to see massive improvements. Yeah. It's like you get into that position, you contract the muscle, great, relax. Contract the muscle again, relax. Okay, bring your arm down, bring it up over your head. Look at that, you have way more range of motion. I'm Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, because I find like, especially like general population people, they just don't know how to move and to control it. So sometimes you just have to teach them like, this is how you're supposed to move. And then just practicing that movement, it just yep. wonders for that client, like almost instantly. And then when they come back next week, it looks even better than when you first started. And you're like, holy crap. I'm like, yeah, like you said, Gandalf, you're like a wizard. <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is our bodies are going to get really good at what we make it get good at. So if we never put our arm over our head, you're never going to get good at putting your arm over your head. Is it important for your goal set? You might want to be good at that. But if all of your time is spent at a computer, at a phone, at a car, where overhead stuff just doesn't have to happen, you're probably not going to be really good at going over your head. So I can completely understand when a client comes in and says, I can't get my arm over my head. Yeah, they're not going to be great at that because they don't have to be. They put the energy towards the stuff that they need to be good at, which if they're working a 40-hour-a-week job, they've got to be good at sitting, and they have to be good at interpersonal communication or technology or whatever it is that's important to them. Overhead range of motion probably isn't high on the list of commands or demands as far as what they need to do. So, yeah, you're not going to be great at it when you start, but if you've got the ability to it and you have the joints available for it, we can get it there. But then it's also a matter of is that important for that person? I mean, unless you're looking to do overhead range of motion stuff, it's one of those ranges that you could give or take for most people. It's still something that you should be able to do, but in terms of necessity to get through daily life, it's not there. I mean, if you can, if you've lasted 50 years without putting your arms over your head, you probably aren't going to get any more benefits or pay raise or new kids or anything like that by putting your arms over your head. I don't know. Maybe there's different breeding protocols out there now. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, you did mention about like an assessment for a hip replacement. I'm kind of curious, like, what do you do if someone came to you that had either a full or a partial hip replacement? Like, where do you start with something like that? Well, depending on the approach they use. So it could be an anterior, lateral, or posterior approach. Most common is lateral approach. Um, there are some research showing that an anterior approach gets people more functional return, but it is a little bit longer time for recovery initially. But even then, we're getting into the weeds on that. 
Um, most of the time, immediately after, they're going to have to go through a healing phase, make sure that there's no risk of infection, go through physiotherapy. And about the six-week mark, they're going to have this uh, post-surgical follow-up. After that, they should be cleared to exercise unless there's something underlying. So at that point, six weeks to eight weeks after their surgery, they're starting to come back into the gym. What I'm looking at in the assessment is what is the range of motion in that hip joint compared to clinical values that should be established. Normal hip flexion is about 120. Normal hip external rotation is about 20 to 30. Internal rotation, maybe zero, because internal rotation, flexion, and adduction is kind of a, a dislocation position. So you don't want to test into those ranges too hard or too fast. Um, you also want to feel what the end range feels like. Is it like a hard end feel, like you're hitting bone on bone or bone to capsule? Or is it like a soft, muscular, resisted end feel where they're just guarding that hip to try to make it so that they can actually not pop the hip out or anything like that? Uh, from there, I want to see what their active control is through the range of motion. And then I'm also going to check what the scar mobility is like. Because with that, it's a pretty sizable scar. They're getting right into the bone. There's lots of tissues that can get adhesed. And if that scar can glide back and forth and get pulled up and down and it's not too tender, great, everything's good. If it's really tender and adhesed, they might have to go in and get some soft tissue work, uh, manual therapy on it, just to break up that scar tissue to allow range of motion to happen. What is their strength, single leg balance control? What does their gait look like forwards and backwards and sideways? If it's all good and they're looking strong, great, let's get up and have some fun. But if we start noticing areas that they would need to improve to do basic activities of daily living, like self-care or walking to and from work, that's where we're going to have to start. Yeah, because I remember I did an assessment on a guy with both of his hips replaced. I can't remember if it was full or partial, but like, Every other joint in his body was just like shit, but his hips moved really well. I was like, damn, okay, this got them bionic real. hips. Yeah, I was yeah. like, this guy's like Wolverine, basically. But uh, yeah. it, it, it's crazy because, like, I remember going to a conference and seeing a physio that kind of like specializes in getting the rehab done for people with those surgeries. And like, she brought out the actual, like, what they put in you. And I was like, holy shit, they put this in people's bodies. Yep. It's crazy. Well, the cool thing is that when it comes to hip replacements, a lot of people expect it to just be like, oh, when I get this replacement, everything is going to be better. Yeah. Like night and day, life is going to be entirely different. The best analogy I could think of is pretend like you got an old jalopy pickup truck. So you take that into the shop and you take out the old jalopy engine and you put a Lamborghini engine into it. Yeah. You still have an old jalopy truck because all of the soft tissue around that hip and every other joint associated with that hip has not been replaced or changed or upgraded or done anything different. So now you've got this brand shiny new chrome and cobalt hip, but all the other stuff around that hip needs to get retrained after probably years of deconditioning, degradation, and other stuff that's going on. So all the ligaments, all the tendons, all the fascia chain, the pulmonary issue, or not the pulmonary, the, the vaso elements of everything, that stuff hasn't been upgraded or updated. So that old pickup truck, your suspension, your brakes, your um, electrical system, all that stuff is still original. You just have a new engine. Yeah. So we still have a lot of work to do to get that back up. And quite a few people come out of a hip replacement saying, I don't have hip pain anymore, but everything else still hurts. Yeah, because you still have the old pickup truck. Yeah. So we got to be able to refinish, refurbish, and build up that truck to make it so that we can monopolize that new Lamborghini engine that we just dumped into it. Yeah. Because, um, like, you have a huge knowledge on, like, hip anatomy. So for, like, the listeners and coaches especially that are listening, like, what are good resources that they could, like, you know, go on Amazon today or buy or, like, 
other than your DVD for your hip and shoulder blueprint, like where are you getting your information from and where can coaches find good information about hip anatomy and how things are supposed to function? Uh, it depends on how deep you want to go. I mean, there's a really cool Instagram account, Chicago Sport Doc, who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he actually has some ebooks available. I think they're only available on Apple products right now, um, but a lot of them are digging into orthopedic surgeries. So if you want to learn more about anatomy and what the surgeon does, fantastic resource. If you want to learn more about like the clinical side of things, what physiotherapists would do or what anybody like that, Dr. Evan Osar is a massively awesome resource. Dr. Brent Brookbush, um, there's uh, Dr. Sarah Duval who does a lot of pelvic floor stuff. Um, there's tons and tons of people out there who are able to do that kind of work. Um, I don't want to just say, you know, oh, just go to this person and it'll do everything for you. Yeah. Depends on how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole. If you want to go straight hardcore to the orthopedic surgery type stuff or dig into the research or whatever, there's tons of resources out there. I don't think that any one of them is worse or better than others just because it's all the same anatomy. It's just different takes on things. Once you start getting into multiple approaches or multiple takes on stuff, you start to say, oh, this is another one of those. Yeah. Or this is another situation like that. And you start to pick the data points that are similar and relay them together. And that's the benefit of more education and more continuing education. You start to see, oh, this is another situation like this, or this is another one of those. And you start to form the balance of what other people are doing that's similar. Right um, so let's go to another question I got on Instagram. Um, in your career, if you could do something more, what would it be? And if you could do something less, what would it be? I have honestly no idea how to answer that. <laughs> I think I'm doing as much as I possibly can. My wife barely sees me as it is, so more I don't know if I could. Other than maybe getting into like physical product development, yeah. But that's something that I've never really thought about or had an interest in doing. And even then, what would I do? Like, yeah. I, I usually train people with like body weight, a band and a stick. And maybe we throw a barbell in there. So what would I do? Just a different band or a stick? Yeah. I'm sure there's a market out there. But <laughs> um, stuff that I wouldn't do, I don't know. I mean, I'm in complete control of my life. So if I didn't want to do something, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Or I would do something different. I mean... That's a tough question to answer. I got to either think on that one or just say, you know, I don't know. I'm too dumb to answer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but the other question I had for you too, because I've been getting this a lot, is um, for any new coaches, like what resources resources should they, you know, follow? And maybe like what certifications should they go take their time and spend the money on? Because like at my gym, we're hiring a lot of new coaches and I've been kind of like mentoring them to get them ready to coach clients and I'd be kind of curious on your take, like if you had a brand new coach that's super eager to learn everything, like where would you want them to kind of start? Yeah, um, I would say everything. <laughs> nice. Especially if it's gonna be a tool that you're gonna use going forward. If you wanna use kettlebells, RKC or SFG would be great. If you wanna get barbell training, uh, SFG does their SFG barbell, but you can also do starting strength. Um, there's also Juggernaut or Kabuki Strength. They do a lot of powerlifting base type training. Mm -hmm. If you want to go down the assessment rabbit hole, then you can go through things like FMS, but then I would also recommend doing the SFMA afterwards to do the breakouts on the individual components. Um, you could also get into PRI, you could get into DNS, uh, developmental neural stabilization. You could get into um, the shoulder and hip stuff that Tony and I talk about. It's not actually a certification, 
communication, but it's just information. Um, there's so many different avenues out there, and it's just a matter of what direction do they want to go. You want to work in sport performance, Exos, or CPPS with James Smith and uh, Joe DeFranco. If you want to get into um, clinical ends of things, go shadow professionals in clinic and intern and volunteer and do stuff in front of people. You're going to learn way more of that than you would by sitting in a lecture theater or by taking notes or looking at an ebook. You actually get in there and see them doing stuff that's going to be way more impactful. Uh, if you reach out to th people like orthopedic surgeons and say, can I uh, observe you doing a surgery? Most of them have no problem with it. As long as you're not trying to get in there and involve it. I've witnessed three hip replacements, two knee replacements, and a few abdominal surgeries. Just because I reached out to the surgeon and said, this is a, a person who I'm working with. Would it be okay if I come in and do this? What is the protocol? What are the procedures? How can I make this happen? And they're usually like, yeah, just show up at this day and this time, and we'll walk you through it. <laughs> cool. Because yeah. I'm not taking away from their ability to provide service to the patient. I'm not getting involved in a way where it's like I'm becoming a nuisance or a wreck. I'm just kind of observing by a distance that they preset or that they say is realistic. So if it's something like that, you can usually get into the theater and actually see the surgery. And if that's a way of going about it, great. If the surgeon says no, okay, they said no, that's fine. They're the professional in the room, let them say no, but you can always ask. And there's no harm in asking and there's no cost to asking. Oh, fair enough. Like another uh, piece of advice I gave to the couple of coaches is like, you're on your phone on social media all the time, so you might as well start following people that will actually give you value and not like watching stupid shit. So I have like a yeah. list of coaches and I, like, I told one of the coaches I'm mentoring right now, I'm like, you need to definitely follow Tony and Dean. And I like sent them your stuff. And like, if you spend I don't know thirty minutes just like looking through your like Instagram feed, like you're gonna learn so much shit, and it's just so easy because like all of the best coaches in our like circle, like they're constantly posting stuff for free. It's just taking yeah. the time to actually read it. <laughs> that or you gotta weed yourself through all the memes I post too. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, like the other question too that you brought up with the um, surgery, like have you ever done any like cadaver work? Yeah. When I was in university, I took a gross anatomy course, so that was all surgical dissection. Jeez, yeah, like yep. I remember, like Dr. John Russin was saying that, like him and actually Dewey Nelson was saying that the first time that they actually had cadaver work, it just like opened their eyes so much more of how the human body works, and it's not just like what you see in the textbook; like everything is connected. So it just, yeah. it just blows your mind. And I'm like, God, I got to do that sometime soon. There are uh, dissection courses that are offered and that they kind of travel. So uh, I think immaculate dissection is one of them. So if you can look that up, you might be able to find a date or time where they do something where it's actually a cadaver dissection. Because it's only like a one or two day, you just observe and somebody goes through to different things and shows you what's happening. If you're taking it in a university course, you're actually in there with a fresh sample or a, a preserved or frozen sample, and you're going through the process with the scalpel and with separators and everything. Wow. Yeah, because, um, yeah, like, my wife, she's in naturopathic medicine, and, like, part of their school, they get to do a cadaver lab, so I'm, like, crossing my fingers that they'll let me come and at least watch it, because I'm, like, fuck, that would be amazing to see, because, yeah. like, you deal with people all the time, and sometimes you just need a better visual than just, like... This is how your ACL looks with like a little infographic. Yeah, or when it's like a computer animation with everything else stripped away, and it's like, well, yeah. here's your ACL. It just exists in its own, floating <laughs> yeah. in space. Yeah, honestly. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up was like, 
the FRC has been getting really, really, really popular, and I'm kind of curious, like, what's your opinion? Because I'm assuming you took their, like, the yeah, the FRC course. Like, have you taken the FR courses for therapists at all? Not the FR courses, but I took the FRA, the assessment course, okay, yeah. as an adjunct of the FRC. They're great courses. But it's one of those situations where you look at it, the way he presents it is awesome. He systematizes it yeah. and makes it so that it's a, if this, then that, and here's the flow of way that you go, which makes sense. And I can't really refute anything that he says in that concept. It's another one of those, oh, it's one of those examples of more learning and more learning and more learning. You just build on top of it. So it just helps reinforce that certain principles work because they work really well. And other principles that don't fall in line with that kind of stuff, they may work too, but they're not going to work as well as those kind of principles. No oh, fair. Because yeah, I, when I took my FRC, like that was the first impression I had my in my head. I'm like, this system makes sense. Like he took all the information that's out there and just put it all together. Where like any coach, even if they were like a year and six months in, it would make sense mm -hmm. to them. I and mean, I'm like, I love people who take complicated concepts and makes it like dumb it down so easy to understand and then apply. Yeah, and the good thing is that you can use those concepts and explain to your client why you're doing it in this systematized way. That makes it really easy to say, well, if you don't have the joint range of motion, we need that first. And then if you have the joint range of motion, but you don't have the active control, that's where we need to go. And if you have the joint range of motion, the active control, but you don't have the competency of the movement, that's where we start. And then it's building on top of everything from there. If you can explain it easily enough to your clients that they pick it up and they can understand and buy into what you're saying, then you're probably right. Okay. Um, what was the next thing I was going to ask you? Um, your new product that's coming out, I think it's is it the trainer toolbox or something like that? Yeah, are you complete trainer toolbox? Yeah, are you allowed to like talk about what it is and anything like that? Of course I am. It's my product. Okay, I'm allowed perfect. to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm kind of curious, like, how did it all start? Like, how did you collaborate with all these certain people? Like, just, just spit it all out. I would love to learn more. Well, part of it was that, I mean, I know a lot of people in the fitness industry who have great information who have a combination of either really big social media presences and are really established or no social media presence and aren't established whatsoever. So I wanted to be able to have a product where it wasn't me doing everything on it, but where it was a collective of awesome people who knew what they were talking about and were able to promote the content and the information that they had to a broader audience, but also leverage each other's strengths. So we've got uh, Dr. Lisa Lewis, who's a clinical psychologist, uh, myself, then we've also got Tony, who most people know who Tony is. Uh, Dr. Sam Spinelli, who's actually an Edmontonian who went and got his doctorate of physical therapy. And he talks about a lot of like squats and knee pain and that kind of stuff. After that, Dr. Sarah Duval, who's a pelvic floor specialist. So she talks a lot about pre-postnatal health, um, why pelvic floor health is really important. From the UK, Luke Worthington who I don't know if many North Americans really know about him, but he's kind of a big deal over in the UK. Uh, he talks a lot about assessments and biomechanics and how to actually go through an in-depth assessment process. Uh, Alex Krzyzewski, who's a physiotherapist in the UK as well, talks about back pain and how trainers can actually approach that. Uh, then we got Megan Calloway, another Vancouverite, nice. talking about pull-ups because that's what she's awesome at. 
Uh, Tony talks about writing and also overhead uh, mobility. We've got Kelly Davis who talks about business development and finding your ideal clients. So we've got a lot of very big resources crammed into one toolbox kit. Uh, our main goal with this is to find practical solutions to common problems that trainers have. So we want to make it so that if you say, oh, my client has a sore lower back, what do I do? Here's references for that. My client has really bad knees, what do I do? Here's a reference for that. How do I find a better client who's more in line with my style of doing everything? Here's a reference for that. And then we even included continuing education credit so trainers can keep their certs. No, that, that sounds amazing. And like, it, it, is it like a DVD? Is it like an ebook? Like, how, how did you guys structure it? It's all digital videos, and it's all set up as kind of a webinar series. So for anything that's got uh, the webinar base, and then if it has a practical component, all the practicals are shot live as live video segments. So it's kind of like, imagine if you were to go to a conference and hear all of these different presenters speak. You get to do that from the comfort of your own home at any time you want with no need to travel or make annoying small talk with other trainers. <laughs> Amazing. Um Maybe for the last thing that I wanted to bring up, like when I posted on the Eat, Train, Progress, Patrick Umphrey put like a really, really nice message about you. And it, it, it's awesome that you did that. And like, I, I think the sad thing in the industry, there's a lot of coaches out there that don't have like common sense of being a human being. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, a decent human being would like, if someone asks you a question, like, why don't you answer them? Like, one of my biggest pet peeves when I first started in the industry is, like, I would email all these coaches that I was, like, basically they're my idols and they're, like, celebrities to me. And, like, you know, one out of the ten would actually email you back. And it just blows my mind because it's, like, you know, these people you look up to, why wouldn't you want to email them back and, like, help them out? And I don't know yeah. if you can, like, answer this, but it's, like, for all the new coaches out there, like what can they do to kind of like professionally develop themselves and like personally develop themselves that they end up like 10 years down the road, one of those people that when they think of like, you know, who's a really good coach based on their skill and also personality and they automatically like think of you, like what are some things that people should focus on to be a well-rounded human being, I guess? Um, that, that's a tough one because yeah. it's everyone's individual, right? But uh, I, I think it all comes back to you, it's going to get paid forward one way or another. You can talk about karma if you want, but uh, if I'm nice to somebody today, what's that going to do for me down the road, say five or 10 years? So as an example, it's uh, one of the contributors for the Complete Toolbox, Sam Spinelli. When he was in Grant McEwen University in Edmonton taking his phys ed program, he reached out and he's like, hey, can I come shadow you training your clients sometimes? And it, it gives me no benefit to have someone shadow, but it gives him a huge benefit. But it also doesn't take away from me to have somebody shadow. So yeah, sure, come in shadow as much as you want, anytime you want that's free. You come in, watch me train clients, ask about program design, ask about why we're doing certain things. And it was never a matter of me being defensive as far as like him questioning my approach, but more just like him trying to learn, which is great. That's what I'm here for. Um, down the road, he gets his degree, his is a doctorate in physical therapy. He and I then co-teach a workshop together in Edmonton this past year, which was kind of a massive come around type of moment. And then he's also contributing on a product that I'm putting together, which is gonna help generate income in the future for me and for him and for everybody involved. So. If I hadn't taken the time to say, yeah, come in and shadow, that would be a business connection that I probably would have lost or that wouldn't be there at all. 
which means that we wouldn't have been able to co-teach a workshop together and have income from that. We wouldn't be on this presentation or this product and we wouldn't have income from that. And it wouldn't be leading to business development in the future that I have no idea about. So if you take the time to be nice to somebody, it's probably gonna come back to you in ways that you don't think about or in ways that you don't see a direct correlation of a one-to-one. I know that if you talk to a lawyer about a legal matter and you've hired them on as their lawyer or whatever, if you send them an email question, they're gonna bill you. We're trainers. I understand that I could bill every single person who asks me a question or say, in order to answer that, here's my Venmo number and send me money and then I'll answer you. But at the end of the day, this is a people-oriented business as well as service and hospitality. Like we have to draw a line when it comes to questions and when it comes to service and all that kind of stuff to say, to do this, you have to pay me. But at the same time, if I'm trying to reach a broad audience and I start saying, pay me, pay me, pay me, I'm not going to reach a broad audience. And if I'm doing this to help people and move the industry forward or at least put my stake on it as much as I can be, leave a dent in the universe, I can't just be asking people to pay me stuff all the time. At a certain point in time, you got to start thinking about it more big picture versus small paycheck. Yeah. I, I think also, like, if you're actually meant for this industry and you're super passionate and you love what you do, this stuff kind of just happens naturally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, a lot of times people go into the training industry and, like, after a year, they just quit because they're like, ah, it's too, too much effort, too hard work, I have to do split shifts, I'm not making enough money, and those are the ones that, you know, on like a Saturday, like today, like I was really happy that you said that, yeah, let's do a podcast today, most people will be like, it's my day off, I'm not doing anything, right, but like, those people stand out where it's like, if I get an email over the weekend from a client, I'm not going to wait until Monday morning, like, it's just small little things that add up over time and people start noticing it and then they'll always know that, oh, I can always count on Dean. I can always count on this person to always help me. And yeah, yeah, a small gesture goes a long way every single time. Yep, and I mean, sometimes it comes down to saying, how can I make this a better scenario one way or another? So in the example of Patrick, like I'll talk about that since he already put it up. Um, He was asking a lot of in-depth questions about one of the clients that he was working with and what do I do? How do I do this or do all this? And I was happy to answer him because it's helping him get better results at the end of the day. I think it took maybe like a half hour of time to go through everything and answer questions. So the day after he sends me a PayPal payment of... I can't even remember how much money it was, but uh, he just sent it to me saying, hey, thanks for your time on this. And I was like, dude, I didn't ask you for money. I appreciate the gesture. It's really nice and good that you're thinking about the value of time and everything like that. But if I wanted money out of this, I would have told you I wanted money out of that beforehand or I would have had you hire me or something like that. So I took that money and then made a donation to an autism research facility that because I know that one of his kids is on the autism spectrum. And I thought that that would be something to be able to say, hey, I appreciate this. And to show you that I appreciate this, here's something that I'm going to do for you going forward. And I thought that that was just a simple way of making that happen. I've also had that where that, that wasn't the first time something like that has happened where somebody has asked me a lot of questions and really in-depth stuff and then sent me money expecting that that would be necessary. Um, if it's something where I'm like, yeah, you have to hire me for this, then I'll get the payment up front and then I'll give you the info. But if somebody is you know, trying to say, oh, I'm just going to pay you afterwards just as a donation of time, okay, well, I'm going to donate that to a charity for something because it's not something that I see as necessary. I mean, I appreciate the fact that people value time, but at the same time, I value people's results as much as a $50 payment or a $100 payment or something like that. So if I can help people get great results with minimal time investment on my end, cool. I'm happy with that. 
awesome. I think that would be a good place to end. So maybe for the very last question, people wanted to learn more about what you do, where can they find you online, and then anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. <laughs> uh, my home base is deansomerset.com. If you want to see any of the products I have, they're all listed on there. Uh, online coaching is available too. You can click on the coaching icon for that. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram and check out all the memes I make in between sick mobility flows, dsomerset1. I do have another Instagram account, but I forgot the password and I can't figure out how to log into it. So that's why D Somerset one versus anything else. But uh, that, and I think I still have a Facebook page. I still have Twitter. So yeah, that all works well too. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. My pleasure, man. Can't wait until uh, October. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's going to wrap up episode 209 of Dean Somerset. So like I said earlier, if you're interested in the complete trainer's toolbox, the link is in the show notes if you want to check that out. And the last comment that Dean said that he would see me in October is we, well, I am bringing Dean and Tony back to Vancouver for their complete hip and shoulder blueprint. So stay tuned for that. And again, my ebook, goddamn, almost done. I'm putting the finishing touches on it, and I'm so excited for you guys to experience it. So keep an eye out for that. And again, share, 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 share this podcast with your friends and family so we can grow this thing. Until next time, you guys.